This morning we are continuing our summer vacations trip through the parables. And I realize it doesn't feel a lot like a summer vacation, primarily because of how tricky and slippery some of the parables can be. Over the next three weeks, we'll look at three parables that are in Luke's gospel only. They're unique to Luke's account. Jesus taught through these cryptic sayings very often, so it makes sense that in the longest of the four gospels, we'd find more of them. So we'll take these three parables over the next few weeks, and we'll treat them like Luke is offering us a backstage pass. This is where we can see and hear things that we wouldn't find elsewhere. Young theologians, as we do this this morning, I know it's your summer break, and I know that you're glad to be out of school, and I know that it feels like we haven't given you a break. We haven't let you off easy. You show up week after week in the summer, and week after week, we seem to throw at you the most difficult passages we can find. So this morning, my question for you is simple. What does the amount of our love have to do with the amount of of Jesus' forgiveness? That's the only question I want you to answer. I want you to think about that one. Keep it simple. Listen to the whole passage. Listen to the sermon and see if you can come up with the answer. What does the amount of our love have to do with the amount of Jesus' forgiveness? We're in Luke 7, and this is the good news preached mysteriously by Jesus himself and then handed down to us faithfully by his servant Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your daughter... Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord Jesus, your parables, even the simple and the short ones, 
challenge our intellect and they strain our faith. But oh Jesus, how you love to use them to train our hearts. We confess to you that our hearts do need training and our faith does need stretching. Many of us this morning have wet eyes that need drying, so would you do these things for us in the preaching of your word? We ask these things of you because we know you to be kind, not because we deserve them, because you have chosen to delight yourself in showing kindness to your people. Do these things for us this morning for our good and for the sake of your own glorious name. Amen. Would you be seated? If you lived in the South any time at all, you know that Southerners pride themselves on etiquette. You don't have to brag about it. You don't have to know all the ins and outs. You don't have to read Emily Post or know which fork to use in every situation. But at the very minimum, we pride ourselves on being gentle, on being gentlemen, on being ladies on maintaining decorum. And even if you're not from the South, you know when things breach these unwritten but rigidly established social norms. We all know what it feels like, that awkward feeling when etiquette's been broken. You understand and feel the shock of it that a line has been crossed when Schwartz, in a Christmas story, skips the triple dare and heads straight for Flick's throat with the triple dog dare. You can feel it when Garth Brooks shows up in boots and ruins a black tie affair. You know it's wrong when George Costanza fights the bubble boy because he's losing at Trivial Pursuit. And men, you know that you don't shake hands in a bathroom. We may not know all the ins and outs, but we understand etiquette. One of my friends always enjoys what he calls the awkward dance. If you go out to dinner with a bunch of adults and there's something on the table to be shared, as you get closer to the last whatever it is, there's an awkward dance. So let's say you go out for Mexican food. You have the group of adults and the chip basket gets lower and lower. And people have to become sneakier and more careful as they take those chips. And that last chip will stay there for hours. Nobody wants it. I can't take the last chip. If I take it, there won't be any left, and then people won't have it. I can't live with that kind of guilt. All of these things are just mistakes. All of these things are breaches of etiquette, but we understand that they create tension. These are the kinds of things that onlookers try to ease tension by giving us that prolonged, kind of high-pitched, half-sung, awkward, and it never does the trick. All of these are just mistakes. All of these are just social missteps. But what about when it's a matter of not saying or wearing the wrong kind of thing? What if it's a matter of being the wrong kind of person entirely? What if it's a matter of being broken beyond repair and acceptance? So that you're not just awkward, you're unwelcome. I'm not talking about people who are bad at conversation. I'm talking about people who are bad at life. Not the kid who picked his nose or ate glue in school. The corrupt, backroom-dealing politician. 
the woman who for a price is willing to offer late night company. It's important that when we talk about tension, you picture these kind of human impositions. Because one of these gaffes just snuck into a religious state dinner and she's making a scene. Now Luke's pretty clear with us. His euphemism is very clear. A woman of the city who was a sinner. It's just as polite, but it's just as plain as one of us saying that she is a lady of the evening because we have children present. And to be clear, this isn't gossip that was whispered at the table. This isn't Simon's personal opinion of her. This is Luke's candid description for our benefit. And he makes it clear that those present can tell where she's been. Whether they know her personally or not, they know what sort of woman she is. They know what she does and what's brought her here. She hasn't slipped in quietly to stand in the corner. She isn't hoping to ride this out and go unnoticed. This woman is caressing your Messiah's feet. She brought ointment to anoint his feet, but now in Jesus' presence, she completely breaks down. Red-eyed and snot-nosed, she's crying and she's drooling. She's She's not just making a scene, she's making a mess. She's trying to cover it up, she's trying to make it right by cleaning up with this nest of hair that hangs wet and tangled in her sinful face. And sometimes our familiarity with biblical narratives actually makes them harder for us to understand. We've all read this story before. I'm willing to bet that most of you have heard it preached more than once. You know who the good guys are and the villains before I get halfway through the text. You know that you're supposed to pity her and you're supposed to hate Simon. And if that's what you've done then you're not really in the scene yet. So just take a minute, wives, and imagine yourself at a nice dinner with people you respect from church. Maybe they're parents from your child's new school. You're hoping to make a good first impression. You're hoping the conversation goes your way. And all of a sudden, this working girl in her working clothes slips into the party and starts paying this kind of attention to your husband in front of everyone. You get a feel for the temperature of the room? Don't miss the scandal that everyone at the table can feel. In the story that Luke recorded immediately before this one, people accused Jesus of being the friend of sinners. And now with this woman, everyone around is starting to wonder just how friendly he's been. As soon as I said that last part, some of you wished I hadn't. Even the suggestion offends you. And that's good. Now you're at the party. Now you're sitting there with Jesus and everyone else, and you know what it's like in the room. Now it's awkward. Now you can feel the discomfort. And so this Pharisee and all of his guests want you to know how right and how biblical that kind of holy disdain really is. 
you felt any other way, they would pull you aside. They would read to you out of Leviticus 15, and they would remind you of all the ways that touching the unclean, things and people who are diseased or sinful, all of the ways that those things can pollute you. You don't want to share in their uncleanness, do you? You want to keep your distance. You don't want to share their corruption, and you certainly don't want it for your Savior, do you? In fact, they remember something else, and they flip the pages quickly to Numbers 5 and Deuteronomy 22, and they show you the Bible is clear. There are instructions here for the ways that we curse a woman like this. This woman is supposed to be stoned to death. And this is the kind of reaction Simon expects. If this Jesus were any kind of prophet at all, he would know what kind of woman this is. And if he had a shred of holiness, he would know the curse she deserves. That's the first thing that Simon misses. These are the first pieces right off the bat that he's gotten wrong. Jesus Jesus doesn't become polluted by coming in contact with the unclean. The unclean come to Jesus and their pollution is taken away. He doesn't curse. He doesn't come to picket the graves of sinners. He has come so that he can be their curse. So that he can be the curse and bear the burden that they cannot. But it's that reaction, that desperate wish that she wasn't here and that none of this was happening, that is what Jesus addresses. The one who cleanses the unclean has decided at this dinner that he's going to clear the air. And he's going to do it with a parable. But parables make us uncomfortable. And they should. They're very slippery. They necessarily make it difficult for us to get our bearings. When we read them, we never know if we're supposed to be the ones comforted or if we just got trapped. So as soon as we start hearing things that sound like a parable, our guard goes up. As educated and sophisticated people, when we come across these in Scripture, we comfort ourselves by pretending to know what's going on. Like Simon the Pharisee, we feel safer if we can at least feign being in the know. So when Luke sits us down at the table and says, pull up a chair, Jesus has a parable for you. We can feel all the vulnerability And we know that we need to be armed with data. So we distance ourselves and we say, Luke, did you know that approximately 35% of Jesus' recorded teachings come to us in the form of parables? And Luke says, that's great. Sit down and listen. Yes, yes, Luke, but before we dive in, I think it's important that we classify this correctly. Did you know that Dodd breaks parables down into four categories of essential function? But there are scholars like Jeremias who come up with ten categories based on their central messages. I think we should chart this out, Luke. I don't think we should jump right into this. Let's take our time. Let's be careful. And Luke says, this isn't a time to be careful. Sit down. Listen. And join us as we consider this riddle. So reluctantly, you take your seat. And you wait. So Jesus starts in. 
there was a money lender, and he had laid out a large sum of money. Now, a denarius is, is roughly equivalent to an average day's wage. And in this culture, people work six days a week. So one of these borrowers takes out a line of credit equal to about 50 days worth of solid labor. That's two months' worth of salary. It's closer to three months for us in the Monday to Friday crowd, but for them, it's two months' salary. And the other borrower in the parable took out ten times as much, almost a full two years' worth of pay. And already with the first line, you're sitting at the table and your head is reeling, trying to imagine what could possibly require such a mountain of debt. Was there an accident at work? Was he required to go on disability? A sick child, perhaps, no insurance, piles of medical bills. Maybe he tried to work his way into some cultured upper crust to impress a a girl from the Dallas old money scene. That kind of social climbing requires a new wardrobe and expensive dinners. It takes sailing lessons and vacation homes, Christmas in Banff, a summer at the Cape. Or maybe he just squandered all of it. Maybe he laid it all into a surefire real estate deal right before the bubble burst. Or maybe it was a string of horses that he knew couldn't lose, but they did. We start to feel buried under this man's debt. And then Jesus tells you the worst part. These guys are broke. Both of them. The one that's in for a little and the one that's in for a lot. These guys are the turnips, and you're not going to squeeze any blood out of either. So Jesus grabs Simon's attention at the head of the table. Hey, Simon, when the moneylender tears this page out of his ledger, when he rips it up and burns the pieces and forgives these debts, which Welsher is going to love him more? And you know the answer just as well as this Pharisee. It's easy. Of course, the guy who is buried under two years' income worth of debt, he's going to love this man more than I can imagine loving anybody. Ah, but you need more than the answer to that question to understand this parable. Simon knew the answer, and the parable's meaning soared over his head. You're going to have to have more. I'm sure this is getting to be a cliche for you. This is overly predictable for you in my sermons, but even in the parables, even here this morning, a working knowledge of the Godfather is immensely helpful. In the first 30 minutes of the first movie, Vito Corleone, the Godfather himself, is taking requests and offering counsel during his daughter's wedding. And in one scene, he's talking to his own godson, the singer Johnny Fontaine, when his own son, appropriately named Sonny, slips in the back of the scene. He sort of sneaks in the door, and you see him in the background. Now, Johnny needs the Godfather's counsel, but Sonny, notorious for being unfaithful to his wife, needs a father's reprimand. So Vito pretends to ignore Sonny's entrance to the room. And he turns to Johnny so that Sonny can overhear everything he says. And he addresses both of their needs with one statement. He looks right at Johnny and says, You spend time with your family?
Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family is no man at all. He wants Sonny to overhear. Because with one fell swoop, at the same time, Vito gives Johnny advice and he scolds Sonny. And that's the beautiful trick of Jesus' riddle here. In this four-line puzzle, he's given correction and comfort. At the same time, in the same riddle, in the same parable, to two very different people. Jesus is saying the self-righteous and the arrogant need to be knocked down, but this poor woman, this woman who knows her own sin better than any of her evening companions, better than any gawkers at this dinner ever could, she only overhears the parable, but she understands all of it. It flies over Simon's head, but none of it gets past her because she's in it. She doesn't have to imagine what it might be like to suffocate under this impossible debt of sin. She's lived it. And I said earlier that our familiarity keeps us from seeing clearly. We tend to miss this parable. We think it's about justification. This isn't about how one is forgiven through the cross of Jesus. That is true. That's not what the parable is about. It's actually about sanctification. It's actually about the new life for those who have been brought to life in Jesus. It's the way that His resurrection is at work in us, pushing us toward our own. So don't be confused. Don't get lost in it and think that this parable is about loving enough in order to be forgiven. It's not it at all. It's about the Lord growing His people, His forgiven people, into a love that's not their own. Did you catch it in the parable? Did you see it as we ran through it? The love doesn't produce forgiveness. It grew out of it. In his commentary on the situation, Jesus doesn't forgive because of her loving actions. He says they can only belong to someone who knows she's been forgiven an impossible amount of sin. We hear all of this and we think we get it. And the more we think we get it, the more we miss it. Because we also try to make this dry and doctrinal. We hear it and we take away that Jesus forgives really bad people. And that's true. But then we walk away and we live with our own nagging doubts that if we're not good enough, Jesus must not have. Jesus could never. Jesus will never love us. When we do that, we've missed the parable entirely. When we do that, we don't feel anything that Jesus intended for us in it. The riddle of the two debtors doesn't belong on a gospel tract. Because this isn't an instruction list. This isn't a recipe for how you find forgiveness. 
We need to keep this one under our pillows for the nights that we cry ourselves to sleep over the depth of our own sin. Because when that happens, when the despair of your own debt drives you to weeping, that's the time to pull this one out. Because it can only be seen clearly with the blurred vision of tearful eyes. So here's the good news for those of us who have wept. Those of us who have drooled and howled over our sin like this. Jesus canceled my debt and he canceled your debt at the cross. The simple beauty of it is that he didn't refinance it. He didn't haggle to reduce it like the shrewd servant from last week's parable. He actually paid it. This isn't some clerical error. This isn't finding out that your billing summary got lost in the mail. It's a case of identity theft. Jesus stole your guilty, bankrupt, and incapable identity. He took all of it on and he died your death. So hanging there on the tree, he sings a love song over us and it rings out to Telestai, it is finished. We sang it this morning, and now anytime your conscience or your accuser or some televised religious zealot calls you up like a bill collector to manipulate you with guilt and remind you of all your debt, you sing the same song back to them. It is finished. I love Jesus because he loved me first. You didn't have to steal his identity. He gave it to you when he walked out of the tomb. He gave you his identity as the beloved son. So because of him, because of what he's done, you sing back, I don't have any debt. Because of him, the father is now pleased in me. That kind of joyful, peaceful, confident, forgiven singing... That's what it means to understand this parable. It is what you thought all along. Parables are traps. The great reversal in this one is that he snares the self-sufficient and he frees the needy. When we read through it, did you keep imagining that you were at a table? Did you see the beautiful irony that this unfolds at a table where someone has been invited for fellowship and someone else has been denied? Simon wants to keep this sinful woman as far as possible from the table that he hosts. And with these four little lines, Jesus holds Simon at an arm's length and he escorts a forgiven sinner to his own table where he will host and serve her. Just like Mary sang of the Lord at the beginning of Luke's gospel, with this little parable, Jesus has filled the hungry and he has sent the rich away empty. So Jesus sends the woman away from Simon's meal, but not from himself, not from his table, not from his communion. He simply dismisses her from this party and the peace that he has given so he says, go in peace. Now, when we read through stories like this, 
Sometimes he says, go in peace. Sometimes to people like this, he says, go and sin no more. So what are we supposed to make of that? Is he letting some people off easier than others? I don't think those two goodbyes are all that different. I think that what Christ intends for his people is the same. He says it differently. Now, part of our misunderstanding comes in the way that we define peace. When it comes to understanding and defining and living in peace, we're really bad at it. You and I think that peace is two weeks on a beach with a book and no cell phone. You and I think that real peace is the end of a war. We only know how to define it in terms of idleness or the absence of conflict. But real peace, the Lord's shalom, is the Lord creating a wholeness in His people and in His creation that puts an end to conflict better than any treaty ever could or ever will. Shalom is the Lord exchanging curse for a restoration that brings rest more permanent than a vacation. And this is what Jesus intends among His people. This is what Jesus wants for His people. In actuality, this is what Jesus is doing in His people. He is making us find our peace, our shalom in the struggle of sanctification. So Jesus gives us a peace. But it's a peace that's enjoyed in the fight of our sanctification. That holy war of remembering the kind love that has forgiven you. And then in turn, exchanging it for the love of the people and the things and the worship and the holiness that Jesus treasures instead of the sin that we used to love so cheaply. And the sin that never loved us back. This parable tells us two things at the same time. It tells us to give up any pretending that your sin is a manageable debt. It also says give up trying to manage the weight of it by carrying around your own guilt and doubt. This parable says to me that my sin is no less grotesque than my enemies. My sin is no less persistent and my own children's. And my sin is no less frustrating than my wife's. And then it says, all at the same time, my sin, no less than all of my sin, has been forgiven. Every last gross and tenacious and infuriating bit has been forgiven. And now all that's left to me is to enjoy Jesus by love. So skeptics, those of you who are with us this morning, who may have been with us for several mornings, but don't quite know what to make of all our discussions about sin and brokenness. Is there anything in this parable for you? Of course there is. In this parable, don't miss it, everyone owes because of sin. And the parable's clear, there are no able debtors. None of us is able to try harder and pay back the debt owed for our brokenness. 
And that statement isn't meant to saddle you with guilt. It's the truth, but it's meant to actually bring you through weeping and into peace. But if you've never seen the enormity of your debt, if you've never heard the declaration of forgiveness, then ask God to show you. As odd as it sounds, ask Him for a clear picture of some of it. If you're brave enough, ask Him for the tears that come with the sight of it. And then on the back side of that, ask Him not to leave you there. Ask Him for the faith that He gives and all of the peace that follows and swells and grows because of it. Kara and I watched a great movie this week. It wasn't The Godfather. And so to avoid any spoilers, I won't tell you which one it is, because the movie has a few surprises. But in it, one of the characters creates an elaborate fiction that allows him to see so clearly and despise the sin of everyone around him. And this fiction gives him license to become preoccupied with their sin and to hate their sin so much and so often that he never has to remember his own. In the end, this character is asked to give up his invented version of reality. His response is that he loves the fiction. In fact, even if it were to cost him his own life, he would hold on to the imagination because, he says, it would be better to die a good man than go on living as a bad one. That's exactly what's happening here for Simon. That's exactly what happens here. For all those cut outside the parable, it seems better to perish with an imagined righteousness than to declare our need and find peace. So to those of you who find your sin to be manageable, and to any who can't help but notice how small your outstanding debt is when you compare it to that of others, Jesus says one thing to you. Take all of your pride and drown it. Drown it in the flood of tears and weep. But to all of you who have wept over your sin, to any of you who are weeping over your sin now, to all of you who love Jesus so much because of His unbelievable forgiveness, you who find comfort in the struggle that rages to see your sin put down and put away, To all of you, loved and forgiven saints, all of you who know how much more beautiful Jesus is when viewed by watery, red-rimmed eyes, because He's all that you have, Jesus says one thing to you, go in peace. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are overcome by our love for you. Your forgiveness for us is unfathomable. You have exchanged our weeping for tears of joy. In pain for our death on the cross. In rising with new life for us in the resurrection. 
you have secured for us the privilege of enjoying your peace. We don't deserve it, and it's surprising that we have it. But, oh, Lord Jesus, how you have delighted yourself to give it to us. We don't have to pry it out of your fingers. You give it freely. You give it for your own enjoyment, for the expression of your grace. And because of that, we find that our doubt, our guilt, and our discomfort melt away. And what you give to us is your comfort. And we are left with one thing, to enjoy you by love. So we ask that you give us more of it. We ask that you would let us enjoy you more, that we would feel the relief of our guilt stolen away, of your blessing and your privilege as a loved son given to us. Do these things for us because you are kind, because you delight to do it, because we benefit so greatly from it. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.